Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. The warning signs are flashing bright red about what exactly a second Trump term would look like. Four criminal indictments, four criminal trials barreling toward him. And now the former president is openly threatening to weaponize the Justice Department against his political opponents if he takes back the White House. Congressman Jamie Raskin is here with his reaction, and he's coming up first. Plus, special counsel Jack Smith unveils a big clue about how he plans to prosecute his case as Trump's lawyers ask for his federal trial to be televised. The in-house law firm of Andrew Weissman and Neil Katyal is here to weigh in on all of it. Also today, resounding victories for Democrats in crucial races all across the country as Republican culture wars fall completely flat. We'll talk about what it means for 2024 and beyond. And later, a trip to the farm, a bike ride through Georgia with Raphael Warnock. We talk about the fight for democracy, his bond with the former president, and balancing his life as a pastor with his life as a United States senator. After a long stretch of dark political predictions for Democrats and a lot of freaking out of our poll numbers, things did start to feel a little bit better this week. A Democratic governor was reelected in Kentucky. Democrats swept control of the Virginia legislature, which most people were not predicting. And the people of Ohio turned out in droves to protect abortion rights in their state. You might have found yourself thinking, all right, maybe things aren't so bad. Maybe I shouldn't be so terrified about the safety of democracy and my rights after all. The forces of good are winning out in the end. And I'm going to tune this all out for a while. I have other things to worry about. If that's how you're feeling, I kind of get it. And there are some things to feel relieved about. But at the same time, the threat of a second Trump term is still very real. And the things he is saying right now are some of the most concerning things we have ever heard him say. So it's important for everyone to really start listening. If I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Mostly what that would be, you know, they would be out of business. They'd be out. They'd be out of the election. If they're beating me, go down and indict them. Trump is forecasting that in a second term, he will wield power however he chooses, unconstrained by the rule of law. This is some truly scary, authoritarian, banana republic type stuff, and we should hear it that way. Just yesterday, he took to Truth Social to imply that Democrats, or any political opponents, frankly, are the greatest threat to America and need to be rooted out like vermin. Vermin is the word he used there. And it's not just rhetoric. Remember, the Washington Post reported just last week about specific plans Trump and his allies have drafted to put his words into action. On top of planning to launch investigations into people who dared to critique him or disagree with him during his time in office, including people who work for him. His team has also started to map out plans to invoke the Insurrection Act on his first day in office, which basically would allow him to dispatch the military against civil demonstrations. Think about how crazy that is. Oh, and in the same Univision interview, he also defended his family separation policy at the border. 
And new reporting from The New York Times this weekend confirms he also has plans for sweeping raids of undocumented immigrants, mass deportations, and the creation of giant camps. He wants to restate the Muslim ban, something he also repeated this weekend. And when he was asked about this about it this week, about how the U.S. can stop the killing of innocent people in the Israel-Hamas war, he basically said we should just let it all play out. And yet, the hand-wringing and cocktail party speculation about an alternative to Joe Biden is continuing, will continue. Guess what? Joe Biden isn't perfect. No candidate is, by the way. But we have to understand what the alternative is here. If elected to a second term, Donald Trump would prosecute anyone he deems an enemy, unleash troops on protesters, and essentially unravel the rule of law as we know it. And this time, he plans to align his administration with people who will actually help him do it. But sure, Joe Biden is three years older and occasionally trips over things. Look, there's a lot to be concerned about right now when it comes to a second Trump term. The speeches are getting much more disturbing and much more unhinged, and we should all hear it that way. It's also important to talk about all of this and important to call it out. But there is nothing more important than digging into his actual plans. The faintest of silver linings here is that Trump is warning us in his own voice with a microphone on and a camera rolling, by the way. He's telling us exactly what he plans to do. We all just need to listen. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin. He led the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, and he's now the ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. You have thought a lot about Donald Trump, and you have studied him a lot. You've uh, been so involved in holding him accountable. When he said this week, if they're beating me, go down and indict them, and some of the uh, pronouncements he's made over the weekend, I've heard that as kind of his authoritarian impulses getting worse. How do you hear them? Well, the role of the government, in his view, is to advance his political fortunes and destroy his political enemies. So what would a second term look like? It would look a lot like Vladimir Putin in Russia. It would look a lot like Viktor Orban in Hungary. Illiberal democracy, meaning democracy without rights or liberties or respect for the uh, due process system, the rule of law. And in fact, there's not much democracy left to it because their position is that uh, they don't accept the integrity of any election where they lose. And that is a hallmark of an authoritarian party. They don't accept elections that don't go their ways. They refuse to disavow political violence. They embrace political violence as an instrument for obtaining power. And then everything flows from the will of a charismatic politician, and that is Donald Trump uh, in their book. So we're, we're clearly headed into a completely different form of government than any of us would recognize as continuous with the past. Right-wing authoritarian government in league with Putin, Xi, Orban, Bolsonaro, Putin and Xi and Orban, and those are some serious authoritarian dictators out there. But they're people, it sounds like you're saying people should look at if they're wondering what a second Trump term would look like. Those are the people that Donald Trump and his family do business with. Remember, um, his son-in-law brought back $2 billion from Saudi Arabia, from Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, He pocketed that after four years of rendering favors to Saudi Arabia, including covering up the assassination, dismemberment, drawing and quartering of uh, a Saudi American journalist uh, for The Washington Post and rendering all kinds of favors to Saudi Arabia. Well, multiply that times every authoritarian despot on earth. And that's what we're getting with Donald Trump, because they've made relationships with every autocratic, plutocratic, kleptocratic regime 
on Earth. And they don't pretend to have any program for the American people. It's just about restoring Donald Trump to power. Um, they literally didn't have uh, a, a uh, platform that they adopted last time around, which tells you what? Their platform is whatever Donald Trump dictates to them on any particular day. And we see our colleagues in Congress just taking orders from Donald Trump on everything from shutting down the government to impeaching Joe Biden for nothing. I did want to ask you about one of the specific things. There was some reporting over this weekend in The New York Times about his immigration plans. And none of this is really surprising, given what he's done in the past. But it described it as preparing to round up undocumented people already in the United States on a vast scale and detain them in sprawling camps while they wait to be expelled. I mean, there are a lot of things in history that reminds me of. What did you think of when you read that story? Well, of course, there's been an anti-immigrant impulse in America going back to the beginning with the Alien and Sedition Mm -hmm. Acts and the attempts to politicize and demonize uh, foreigners to the country. Of course, the rounding up of Japanese Americans during World War II. So he wants to pick up on that strain. And that is a purely authoritarian program. I mean, they really have Two programs. One is that, and the other is to pass what Mike Johnson wants, a national ban on abortion rights for American women with no exceptions for rape or incest. But they they understand how deeply unpopular that is, so they're trying to downplay that for now. The cat's got their tongue. They don't want to talk about it. But, of course, that will rise to the top the moment they think they can get it passed. So let me ask you about Speaker Mike Johnson, who you know pretty well, it sounds like. Um, He did release his two-step plan to keep the government open yesterday. No deep spending cuts, which some of the right wing want, but no funding for Israel and Ukraine. Uh, I, I haven't seen Democratic leadership make a pronouncement about what they think of it. The White House has kind of criticized it. What do you make of it? Is this something that could possibly be, does it have any legs? Well, we haven't been able to study that new Republican plan yet. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we want to do everything in our power to keep the government open. So we're serving the American people. The problem within the Republican caucus is that they're caught in a double bind in two directions, right? If they go to try to fund each um, appropriation bill separately, then the mega right starts pasting all of this Mm -hmm. Uh, extreme right-wing graffiti on it. So there's anti-abortion stuff. There's anti-LGBTQ stuff. There's anti-DEI stuff, all of that. And then there are about a dozen Republicans who can't vote for that because they're in Biden districts and they won't go along with it. And they know— 18 of them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're basically signing their own political defeat by doing that. However, if they go for a clean continuing resolution, which is— clearly the way to do it, then you get Chip Roy and the Freedom Caucus saying, no, this doesn't create the slashing reductions in expenditures that we want whenever a Democrat is president. They don't look for that when Donald Trump was president. And he, of course, created record deficits and was spending Mm -hmm. like a drunken sailor. So are we, I mean, it's hard to, you're not running the Republican caucus, but we only have five days here. Should the public be preparing for a shutdown? Well, the best hope is that they want to give their new guy, Mike Johnson, some reprieve. I mean, they have put someone in who they think 
appeals to the common denominator within mm-hmm. the caucus, which is a kind of theocratic agenda. And some of them are saying, well, he's like, you know, the, the backup quarterback who comes in in the fourth quarter. So don't blame him for everything that's mm-hmm. happened. Give him a break here and go with uh, what he wants. But uh, the plan seems strange to me, but I'll reserve judgment on it. And, you know, we're trying to operate uh, with unity in our caucus behind uh, Hakeem Jeffries and our leadership, because it's complicated enough with the Republicans falling apart on a weekly and daily basis. So uh, if it's something that our leadership thinks they can work with, it's something that I imagine most Democrats will say we'll swallow for now. We'll see. It could be a five days. So I, I want to ask you about Mike Johnson, because, you know, you are a constitutional scholar. Um, he is somebody who has said he believes the Bible comes first over the Constitution. I want to be clear, this is not about being a person of faith. There are many people of faith in Congress, of Democrats and Republicans. But saying that the Bible comes first over the Constitution, how problematic is that? As well, a position second in line for the president. Well, let's start with this. Um, when we take our oath of office, we put our hand on the Bible and we swear to uphold the Constitution. We don't put our hand on the Constitution and swear to uphold the Bible. The Constitution is the governing document of the country. And um, we, of course, have a multiplicity of faiths, and people can choose their faith or no faith at all. And that's what Jefferson and Adams and Madison uh, fought for with the American Revolution and the Declaration and the Constitution. I mean, the, the great breakthrough of the American Constitution was to rebel against centuries of religious conflict, the wars between the Catholics and the Protestants and Inquisition and Crusade and witchcraft trials and all of that. They said, we want to put government on a secular principle, which is no establishment of religion, no religious test for public office, and free exercise. Everybody can worship exactly as he or she pleases. But I've got colleagues who get up. One got up not long ago and said the moral downfall of America was in 1962 with Engel versus Vitale, where the Supreme Court banned prayer in the public schools. And I had to remind him, no, the Supreme Court never banned prayer in the public schools. As long as there are pop math quizzes, there will be prayer in the public schools, right? <laughs> All the Supreme Court said in Engel versus Vitale is that the government can't compel you to pray according to a script that the government writes. And that case was from New York. The suit was brought by Catholic families saying that there was a Protestant prayer that was being imposed on everybody. And of course, that's the great argument or one of the great arguments for the separation of church and state and mm-hmm. no establishment of religion. What happens is one church gets control of the governmental process and then imposes its theological orthodoxy and discipline on everybody else. And that's why it's in place. Uh, Never has there been a greater value for constitutional expertise. So thank you so much for bringing it to us and for breaking down so many issues with us, Congressman. Thanks for joining me this morning. My pleasure. Coming up, after a week in which he turned a New York courtroom into a circus, Donald Trump is now asking for his federal trial to be televised. Neil Katyal and Andrew Weissman join me with their reaction after the break. We'll be right back. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. 
Donald Trump's frequent outbursts in a New York courtroom this week were shocking, but not exactly surprising. And of course, by behaving in such an outrageous way, he's making a political calculation, not exactly a legal one. Now, Trump's defense team says they want to put that kind of behavior on full display in his upcoming federal trial in Washington, D.C. In a filing late Friday, his lawyers argued that cameras should be allowed inside the courtroom to capture the proceedings for a television audience. This is something that a range of news organizations, including MSNBC's parent company, are calling for. But the Trump team is clearly making this request for a much different reason. Joining me now is our in-house law firm, Neil Katyal, the former acting U.S. Solicitor General. Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. So, Neil, I'm going to start with you because you wrote in favor of cameras in the courtroom. You've argued for this in an August op-ed saying the reward outweighs the risk. But we also did kind of see how this could be this week. I mean, Trump tried to turn the courtroom into a circus and there weren't even cameras in there. So anything did anything about that change your view or how you see this? No. So first of all, Jen, uh, happy Diwali to you and to all of our viewers. And of course, Diwali is the festival of lights. And the idea of light is what motivated that op-ed, the idea that this is the American people's courtroom. You taxpayers pay for the, this trial, and you should be able to see it in bright lights. And that is part and parcel of our democracy. Um, the fact that Donald Trump uh, has, you know, you know is going to act in a, as you put a circus-like fashion, that's what Donald Trump does. Whether there's cameras in the courtroom or not, it's going to be a circus every day of every week. Uh, the judge will, of course, exert some reign over that. But I don't think that's a reason not to let the American public see exactly what's happening. And I know that there's some speculation that Trump doesn't really mean it, that he doesn't really, he filed this thing, but he didn't even have a single legal citation to any law or rules or anything like that in his filing, asking for cameras in the courtroom. But that's like part and parcel of Donald Trump's legal filings generally. They're very light on law, if any at all. And I think Trump genuinely wants this. Remember, like the most dangerous place in Washington, D.C. is the space between Donald Trump and a camera. So, of (laughs) course, he wants this. Um, But I think the important thing is this trial be televised um, so that the American public can see it or at a minimum live audio in real time. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court has done ever Mm. since COVID. I do that a lot with them. And we should at least be able to hear the trial and not be relegated to third-hand news accounts. Happy Diwali to you as well. Wonderful celebration. So, Andrew, let me go to you, because it's no surprise that a former reality TV personality would want this kind of exposure. Maybe audio is is an interesting option. I would love to know what you think of that. But what do you think his motivation is in all of this? I think he knows that in federal criminal cases that the district judge has no leeway here on her own to order this. That's why about 10 days ago when he was asked his position, he told the government and they represented it to the court that he um, was agnostic. He was not in favor of this. And um, when the government put its brief in saying that it's not legal for a federal district judge to order cameras in the courtroom, he then said, well, of course, then I want it. Um, So he can claim that he was all for transparency, but it's the government and the judge who are keeping this from the public. So I think it is a lot of 
posturing. I'm not disagreeing with Neil that he may in fact want it, but his sort of the way he positioned this is so that he could complain what it's not done. In terms of the merits, if there were, if there were no law out there that forbade having cameras, I completely agree with Neil. I think that the benefits far, far outweigh um, the negatives. There are negatives, but here it's the public seeing this is, I think, paramount, but I don't think it's legally possible. I think Neil's idea of having audio um, is also a, you know, a, a sort of next best plan B good substitute. Um, and we'll see whether Judge Shutkin goes for any of that, but I think it's going to be very, very difficult for her to do it under the current rules. Neil, going to another set of court filings this week, Jack Smith made clear that the insurrection will play a prominent role, or seem to, in his election conspiracy case against Trump. Here's how Politico put it. They said, quote, Smith is casting Trump as one of the 1,200-plus riot defendants who has already been charged. What do you make of this strategy? What does it tell us about his approach? So Smith is responding to four different filings by Donald Trump that were all over the map. I mean, I described them on Monday as not just throwing spaghetti at the wall, but throwing penne, farfalle, orchietti, and every other pasta imaginable. And what Jack Smith did in those filings in response was basically tear them apart. And part of his strategy is to use exactly that quote you're using and outline what his case is at trial, which he says is going to look a lot like the January 6th Committee presentation using insurrectionists who actually invaded the Capitol and said, I was doing this because of Donald Trump. I was following Donald Trump. And I think that is anyone who saw that presentation in the 1-6 committee, you know, knows that is an incredibly emotionally powerful and logically powerful presentation. Andrew, very quickly before we let you guys go back to your Sunday lives, the defense is going to uh, present this week in New York. What are you watching for and what should we expect? In New York, uh, they are going to be focusing on the two elements that the state needs to prove, and that is intent and materiality. So you're going to hear a lot about reliance on accountants, reliance on lawyers, on how the banks didn't really care about um, what was represented to them because they were going to do this deal anyway, and that the loans um, all paid off. Um, just briefly, um, the problem with the reliance on accountants is it has it exactly backwards. The accountants, under their agreements, were entitled to get accurate and fair and candid information from the Trumps and the Trump organization, not the reverse. So if you feed them information that's wrong, you can expect their um, opinions to not be something that you can rely on. So it'll be an interesting uh, couple of weeks that we can we can expect to see. We'll keep talking about it with our in-house law firm, Andrew Weissman and Neil Katziel. Thank you, as always, for joining me. And up next, my take on the winners, but also the losers of elections all across the country this week. I'm looking at you, Glenn Youngkin. And later, a bike ride in Georgia with Senator Raphael Warnock. If you're wondering what kind of music he listens to, you're in luck. We're back after this. So voters actually voted this week. And the results told us a few things, not just about what works, but also what doesn't, it turns out. And in no state was that more obvious than in my home state of Virginia, where we got to see just how flawed Governor Glenn Youngkin's strategy really is. Remember, this guy, this fleece vest wearing political wonderkind or former political wonderkind, I should say, 
had been seen as the future of the Republican Party. That he was a lot of hopes were with him. That is until Virginia Republicans lost the state house and failed to win back the state Senate. And it isn't some big mystery why they lost. First, it was a total misread on abortion and where people were in the state. Youngkin explicitly tied Virginia's state house elections to his desire to pass what he called a reasonable and common sense 15-week abortion ban. People disagreed in the state. And for months, he campaigned, did interviews, spent millions of dollars in order to boost that strategy. But his attempt to solve one of the GOP's biggest policy problems, while also maybe on the side launching himself into the national spotlight, let's just say, it backfired. There's also another misread that hasn't received as much attention, a strategy built upon what he shorthands as parents' rights. On that point, it's important to remember how the last off-year election went in Virginia. Remember back in 2021, Glenn Glenn Youngkin pulled off his surprise gubernatorial victory in a state that Joe Biden had won by 10 points just the year before. I remember this well. He successfully did it by tapping into the frustration and anger that was evident across the country at school board meetings in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and school closures. Parents were mad. They wanted their kids in school. And in that election, Youngkin successfully made parents' rights a large umbrella issue that attracted suburban voters. There was endless punditry, I mean endless at the time, about how the Youngkin team had cracked a winning code for Republicans. The Youngkin was the next great hope. But fast forward to this week, and it's clear that he took the wrong lesson away from that surprise victory. Because it turns out digging deeper into culture wars, talking about indoctrination, targeting LGBTQ plus kids, and pulling books off the shelves or threatening to do that isn't a long-term winning strategy. Take, for example, one Virginia state Senate race, where the Democratic challenger is a former high school teacher who defeated the Republican incumbent. And in this race, the teacher won by pointing to the Republican incumbent's support for a law that was cited by some school districts as a basis for pulling books off the shelves, for book banning, essentially. Or look at Danica Rome's victory as the first transgender state senator in the South. She defeated a Republican opponent who campaigned on banning transgender athletes from high school sports. That was the basis of the campaign. Or look at any number of school board races. In 2021, for example, Loudoun County made national headlines over school board protests. So you probably remember this. But this week, just two plus years later, liberal leaning candidates took a six seat majority on the nine seat school board. So, yeah, what we saw this week was a win for abortion rights and not just in Virginia, around the country as well. And a loss, though, for the right wing's culture war agenda. And the results we saw this week remind me of this line from Glenn Youngkin's strategist after his win back in 2021. He said that Democrats were, quote, talking past the voters, talking to their own base. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Considering where the electorate is, Governor Youngkin and Republicans everywhere may want to heed that advice. Because if they don't go back to the drawing board and start coming up with positions that are actually palatable to voters outside the base, they're in for a lot more nights like the one they saw on Tuesday. Coming up next, we'll go inside Gaza. My conversation with an aid worker on the ground with the hospital system on the verge of total collapse. We're back after this. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. 
Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. If there's hell on earth today, its name is Northern Gaza. That's how the UN describes conditions inside Gaza right now, where the Israeli military has ordered Gaza's largest hospital, Al Shifa Hospital, to evacuate. But international aid agencies say that is nearly impossible amid airstrikes and heavy fighting that's trapping patients, nurses, and doctors inside. That hospital is now reportedly collapsing without power, and its last generator has run out of fuel. Prime Minister Netanyahu told my colleague Kristen Welker this morning that Israel offered enough fuel to operate the hospital, but that Hamas refused. Another hospital in Gaza City, Al-Quds Hospital, is now out of service and is no longer operational, according to the Palestinian Red Crescent. This footage shows medical staff working in the dark using flashlights. Today, the hospital says it has stopped services because of the lack of fuel and power outages. To give you a sense of just how dire the humanitarian situation is inside Gaza's hospitals, consider this acronym used by medical staff to describe some of their most desperate patients. WCNSF. It stands for a wounded child, no surviving family. This is what we know from a range of reporting, but it is very, very hard to talk to anyone inside Gaza right now, given how sporadic the Internet is and the lack of electricity, not to mention constant airstrikes. But we've managed to get connected to Hisham Manah, who is spokesman for the International Committee of the Red Cross. He joins us from the south of the Gaza Strip. Hisham, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to talk with us today. I just want to start by asking you to describe what the conditions are like where you are right now. Hello, Jen, and thank you for having me tonight. Um, the conditions that we are working um, in Gaza Strip as the ICRC, as a humanitarian team, are almost uh, highly challenging, close to impossible. And um, um, same as for the, the, the thousands of families inside Gaza Strip now, especially those who are still trapped in the northern part, who couldn't leave, and those who managed to um, evacuate on foot, walking for several kilometers without any food or um, or, or water, which um, who we I personally saw uh, on on while we were trying to get into the Gaza Strip, carrying uh, medical aid to get to the hospitals. One of them is actually Al Quds Hospital, that's run by the Palestinian Christian Society. Um, it's super challenging for them. It's actually dignifying their human dignity that they have to uh, go through all this and they still have no idea when this is going to stop how are they going to restore their lives i wanted to ask you mentioned alcott's hospital which the reports are that it's unable to really function at this point um, in time is that is that correct and what you've seen on the ground as well Yes. Uh, the last time we were trying to get to the Al-Quds Hospital carrying also humanitarian aid, including medical supplies for the hospitals to continue operating and stop them from complete, uh, you know, um, um, 
collapsed, um, it was impossible to get to the Al-Quds hospital because all the roads leading to it were completely destroyed and um, our own team was um, caught in, in fire. Um, two of the trucks, two of three trucks were damaged and one of the drivers uh, was injured. We had to evacuate like miraculously and uh, we, we arrived to Ashifa hospital where we saw um, thousands of internally displaced families and um, we managed to deliver four of five trucks and we had to abandon one trucks with with we had to abandon sorry one of the trucks with one uh, what's on board uh, we also on the same time after we delivered the trucks we we escorted six ambulances uh, carrying a number of casualties to drove all the way to Rafah crossing and through the way we were we were walking on a main road called Salatin street the same street where you're seeing and you're in the footage um, thousands of civilians walking on foot crossing the valley to reach to the south. We managed to get to the Rafa crossing and now the, 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 some of the injured are receiving treatment abroad Gaza. Um, this is an example of how we are currently operate in absence of absolute safety, um, which hampers our um, our operations, our ability to get the aid to the people. Um, and um, yes, like just today I was with, with the team uh, trying to get uh, blankets, tarpaulins, lines and um, hygiene kits for um, for for families who are who are lucky enough to have a shelter despite the very harsh living conditions the absence of water and you know the lack of hygiene and uh, it was spraying well it's spraying uh, rain it's getting cold uh, at night especially um, there are still yet thousands of families especially those who recently crossed to the south uh, part of Gaza Strip who absolutely have absolutely no idea where they are going to spend the night or uh, where can they get food to uh, you know, to feed their, their children and babies. And I've seen some of them while we were trying to get into Gaza hospital the other day, we received, you know, fire. And uh, there were babies that were actually carried by their, you know, brothers who are also children. And they, they were afraid of crying out loud and they were afraid of getting shot at. They were asking us, do you have food? Do you have water? Are there still any place that can we can go to? Are there still any empty shelters for us? Um, can we cross? I mean, could, um, another, you know, tens of questions that I personally or my team could not answer. It was actually hard to answer because it was nearly a war zone now. Any effort that would lead to, you know, make these people's life a little bit easier is welcome. We welcome all the efforts that allowed in the, the, the humanitarian aid into Gaza, but it's not enough. Sustainable aid must be allowed into Gaza Strip safely. That would allow the humanitarian teams to get this aid to the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people inside hospitals, inside shelters uh, who are still in the wander without any shelters and uh, without any roof on their heads uh, to get that aid to them uh, safely and securely. This is life-saving, literally, by all means. It sounds like you mentioned a couple of times really the lack of water and the lack of water access, which I think it's so important for people to understand and hear that. I also, before I let you go, I want to ask you about Al-Shifa Hospital, because one of the calls has been for evacuation, or this has been what has been mentioned, but that seems extremely difficult given the status of patients, of babies. Can you just explain to us um, in the limited time we have left the realities there and why that is so difficult to make that happen and save people who are in that hospital. Yes. Um, I'm going to start with water first. Bottled water is now a very rare currency. You cannot find bottled water. And some people get, some people in Gaza actually had to go get seawater, add some sugar to it uh, so that they can drink it. 
um, we have witnessed that. Um, for hospitals, uh, before, you know, the situation has become extremely, extremely, extremely dire now in the hospitals, we managed to visit some of the hospitals in northern Gaza, in the Gaza City and the south. And we have seen in, like, I could see through operation rooms that are, the doors are open and more than two, three casualties are being operated on at the same time because there is no space and there's limited capacities that the staff has and they need to save as many lives as possible. At the same time, there were tens of casualties that were rushed into the emergency rooms. At the same, at the same hospitals, there were like thousands of people inside and outside without without hygiene there was no there's no space for women and for children inside these hospitals and people went to the hospitals um uh, running from you know uh, from death they wanted a safe haven uh, a sanctuary and over the past few days unfortunately we have witnessed that some of these hospitals were targeted now it's clear that hospitals enjoy special protection under human international humanitarian law and any military operation around hospitals must consider the presence of civilians of medical staff who are all protected by the international humanitarian law what's going on must stop immediately because if it doesn't simply we will witness more people who lose their lives and more babies who are wounded and there is no one left in their families to take care of Hisham, Hisham, thank you for everything you do. Please stay safe. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. And we'll be right back after a quick break. It's not always obvious, but many members of Congress are not actually lifelong politicians. Some are doctors, educators, business owners. Some are even ordained ministers. The most prominent is, of course, Senator Raphael Warnock. I recently caught up with the senator. I spent the day with him in Georgia as he spent the day visiting a local farm and meeting with religious leaders. And I even got a fun look at how he manages to spend time, what little free time he actually has. This morning, we toured a farm. Uh, we learned a lot about precision farming, how they're trying to make it more efficient. It might surprise people watching to know that the senior, pa senior pastor from Ebenezer Baptist Church is so passionate about this. Why are you? Georgia's a big ag state. And look, all of us have to eat. What, what could be more basic uh, and important than farming? Uh, and uh, making sure that, that uh, we sustain the American farm and and as it sustains the American family. When I got elected to the Senate, I was very clear that I wanted to serve on the Ag Committee. And I'm having a lot of fun, learning a whole lot in the process. I bet you are. I mean, people often think of agriculture as a, something for the Midwest and kind of old white conservatives in red mm. states. It's clearly not that. Well, farming is for everybody, right? Uh, we all have to eat. It is tough business. Mm -hmm. The margins are very narrow and so uh, I've been working on the farm bill to do everything we, I can, and along with my colleagues, to sustain farmers uh, as they support all of us. I know we have to get to a meeting with religious leaders.
So, Senator, what a beautiful place we're in. It is beautiful. How often are you bike riding these days? Not enough. (laughs) Not as much as I'd like. Well, you probably don't have a lot of free time. Sometimes I have my music going when I'm biking. Oh, do you? I was going to ask you if you listen to music while you bike. Yep. Do you listen to it in your ears? Do you listen to it? Yeah, I put my pods in, often listening to some hip-hop. Oh, I was going to ask you. Yeah, it it, kind of keeps me moving. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) still um, serving your church. Um, you're still pastoring your people at your church. You're a senator in Washington during the week. Do you consider yourself more of a pastor or more of a senator? How do you balance that? Oh, wow. Uh, for me, my work in the Senate is an extension of my life's project, which is ministry and service. And so there is this kind of synergy, really, between the two. Do you learn a lot from the people you see at church on the weekend? The, the, the people at church uh, make sure you keep it real. Yeah, that's pretty key. <laughs> they keep you grounded. Ebenezer Baptist. I think most people are familiar with the history of Martin Luther King Jr. there. Does that weigh on your shoulders? Does that lift your shoulders? How does that um, impact how you do your work? It's inspiring. Um, I got to know John Lewis. He was my parishioner. And... Um, being that close to him and Andrew Young and so many others who are right there in the movement is a constant reminder to me that these are just ordinary people in a real sense Mm -hmm. who made a commitment and they bring their gifts to the work and you never know the difference that it will make. Did you interact with President Jimmy Carter at all? Jimmy and Rosalind Carter are two of my favorite people on earth. (laughs) And um Here is a man who demonstrates how your faith ought to work Mm -hmm. and how it ought to come alive. Uh, He's used it not as a weapon, but as a bridge. Mm. And um, he demonstrates that leadership is not so much about an office as much as it is about an orientation, a way of being in the world. So... He, he is a great model for me of what it means to let your faith come alive in the public square. Just deeply inspiring. You know, I, I've enjoyed the times I've had to, to, talk, to talk with him over the years and spend, and spend some time with him. Of course, there's a long history between President Carter and Ebenezer Baptist mm-hmm. Church. A remarkable man. Does it bother you that the evangelical community seems to be, continue to very much be behind Donald Trump? Is that surprising? It's a deep contradiction. Mm-hmm. It's a deep contradiction. And um, I think that um, when the history of this period is written, um, we, we will have a lot to say about, about that. Um, you cannot account for some of the divisive forces at work in our country, mm-hmm. sadly, without reference to what's happening in huge segment, segments of the American church. Um, I come out of a tradition that has always tried to use our faith to bring us together. Um, I like the way Jimmy Carter used his faith. Mm-hmm. I like the way Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Ella Baker and, and uh, white brothers and sisters like James Reeb um, uh, in the midst of the civil rights movement, how they use their faith, and, uh, and so many others in this moment.
My thanks to Senator Raphael Warnock for spending the day with me and helping me along in my shaky biking. And a special thanks to the crew at the Lee Nunn Farm in Georgia. We're coming back right after a quick break. Stay with us. That does it for me today. We'll see you tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. John Favreau and Tommy Vitor of Pod Save America will be here. And Jonathan Carr will join me to talk about his brand new book on Donald Trump that is full of news. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console, console. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.